0: Joshua 5, verses 1 to 15. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives, and circumcised the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbriath horoloth Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after. They ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate all of the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thanks very much, James. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's
1: word. Father God, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. Would you pray this evening as we we look at your word together that we would understand and appreciate and praise you for the privilege it is to belong to your people. Help us to know you more deeply as our God. And help us to be better equipped to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As human beings, one of our deepest needs is to belong, to be part of a family or community or or group. For children and young people, that need to belong can lead to difficult relationship issues at at school as friends fall in and out with, with each other. Some groups uh, develop weird initiation ceremonies for newcomers to demonstrate their commitment to that particular group. Uh, the Masons, for example, are renowned for their bizarre ceremonies in which the, the candidate has to uh, roll up his trouser leg, bare his left breast, right arm, wear a cable toe round his neck, be blindfolded, and have a sword pointed at his breast, etc. Buddhist monks and other tribal. Groups have their own ceremonies, and then there are the student groups, or sports clubs whose ceremonies often involve drinking copious amounts of alcohol. Well, in our Bible passage this evening, we read about the ways in which God's people are called to dedicate themselves to him and show that they belong to him, which may also be considered to be strange. So we're going to look at the significance of them. And by way of recap, um, up to now in our series in the book of Joshua, we've seen how God has brought his people across the River Jordan, how he's commanded them to set up stones as a memorial to what he's done in their lives. And in verse 1 of chapter 5 in our reading this evening, we read about how word has got out to the other nations who currently occupy that land about what God has done. And we're told that their hearts melted in fear. They no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Reminds us, if you were here uh, a few weeks ago, to uh, Rahab's response to the two spies who were checking out the city of Jericho. And uh, Rahab said to them this, as she said, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Back then, the reason for their fear was uh, that they had heard how the Lord had dried up the the water of the Red Sea when they uh, were rescued from Egypt. Well, now the Lord has dried up the waters of the Jordan to enable them to cross. They are getting quite close to where they are, and rightly, they are melting in fear. Maybe it's easy to gloss over that, that fear, that feeling. But imagine how the the German troops would have felt in the Second World War. They've got to dried up the English Channel to allow the Allied forces to cross. In some ways, he did because he enabled the the weather conditions to be right for the the D-Day landings. In Joshua 5, God has brought his people to the edge of the Promised Land. And he's about to enable them to occupy the land that he has promised them. But first, there's something important they need to do. They need to rededicate themselves to God. So what does that rededication look like? Well, it takes three forms. Um, Obedience to God's commands. Celebrating... Oops, come back a bit. Oh, no, it's not on there. Never mind. So three things I'll uh, just summarize them first of all. Obedience to God's commands. Um, celebrating God's faithfulness and his provision and living lives of reverent fear. So let's look at the first of those in obedience to God's commands. The particular command that God gives Joshua in verse 2 is this, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Strange command, you might think. Why does he need to do that? Well, we're told in verse 6 that after leaving Egypt, uh, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for, for 40 years until all the men who were of military age, when they left Egypt, had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. The reason they had had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because they had disobeyed God. They didn't take possession of the land when the Lord gave it to them because they were afraid of the inhabitants. They didn't trust that God would do what he had promised to do. And so we're told in verse 7, he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the ones being circumcised now are those who haven't yet been circumcised. But what is this circumcision thing? What's it all about? What's it got to do with me today? Well, to understand that, we're going to have to go back before we go forwards. We're going to be doing a lot of looking at passages from the Old and the New Testaments this evening. So um, um, get your Bibles ready. Um, We're going to be moving around quite a lot. Um, Let's go back first to Genesis 17 where God first gave Abraham the command to circumcise his people. And the context in which God gave the command was when he established a covenant between himself and Abraham. And this is what he promises in verse 7 of Genesis 17. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. In this covenant, God is promising to be their God, and his way of committing himself to his people is by promising to make Abraham's descendants numerous and to give them the land of Canaan. And as God commits himself to his people as their God, so the people are expected to commit themselves to him as his people. And the way in which God expects his people to do that as part of the covenant is through obedience, and that obedience is shown first in circumcision. So in verse 9 of Genesis 17, God says this. He says, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, For the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So with that background, if we fast forward to Joshua 5. The descendants have just crossed the river Jordan. God is about to deliver his part of the covenant. In terms of the promised land. And it's at this moment that people are called to rededicate themselves to him by being circumcised. That is the sign of the covenant. Okay, you may say, but what's that got to do with me today? Well, if we are Christians, then we too are part of God's covenant people. But we are part of the new covenant. Under the new covenant... We are made right with God. We become his people through the death of Jesus. When we take the Lord's Supper today together, as we will be doing later on, we use the words of Jesus. We say, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood or sealed by my blood. Jesus' death in our place was an act of grace by God, which enabled us to be forgiven for our sins and to be reconciled. To him, and it's by faith that we become united to him, and we become part of the covenant community—a covenant community that now consists of both Jews and non-Jews. So let's go to the, to the New Testament, flicking through the Bible here to Ephesians two, an important passage to understand this sense of, of covenant. And this is what um, Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, therefore. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So if we become part of the covenant community by believing in Jesus, then the question is, how do we show that we have faith in Jesus? How do we show that we believe that his death was sufficient to deal with our sins? Well, the answer is through the two sacraments that God has given us. A sacrament is an outward sign of of an inward spiritual reality. The two sacraments we've been given are baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, what we're doing when we go under the water and come back up is symbolizing how we've died to sin. We've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. We've been washed clean of sin. In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering, we are participating in the death of Christ and in the body of Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are wonderful gifts that God has given us. But the thing to remember is that um, we're not baptized in order to be accepted by God. We don't take the Lord's Supper in order to be accepted by, by God. We take them because he has already saved us. And we want to demonstrate our obedience to him. Because what God is most concerned about is a heart of obedience to his commands and a heart of love for him. And we can't produce that in ourselves. We can't generate that. We can't say, I'm going to love him. Only he can give us that heart of love. Which is why in the book of Ezekiel, come to the last reference now, you please. be pleased to know, God makes this promise. But it's a really important promise. Um, and it's um, quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Oops. It these: the days are coming declares the Lord, but I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. We live lives of obedience to God because he has forgiven us for our wickedness. He remembers our sins no more. And we rededicate ourselves to God through our obedience to his commands well secondly we rededicate ourselves to god through celebrating god's faithfulness and provision as we've seen the people of israel were unfaithful to god they didn't keep the covenant promises they made and therefore they forfeited their share in that promise they didn't live to see the land that god had promised them but god was still faithful to his promise I don't know, when you think, when you look at the world around you and you despair, when you maybe look at your own heart and despair, it's easy to become discouraged, isn't it? and Even depressed at human unbelief and rebellion against God. But that unbelief doesn't stop God being faithful to his promises. He remains faithful. So coming back to Joshua 5, how do the people celebrate God's faithfulness and provision? Have a look at verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Last week, if you were here, back in chapter 4, uh, verse 19, we saw the significance of the date on which the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal. It was the 10th day of the first month. And that date was the date uh, we're told back in Exodus 12, that they were called to make preparations for the Passover meal. The meal itself would take place on the 14th day. The Passover was first designed to to celebrate God's faithfulness in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And now the meal signifies the completion of that rescue as they're about to take the possession of the promised land. And so it says, have a look at what happens next, though. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. The past 40 years, the people have wandered in the wilderness without any place they could call home. But during that whole time, God has provided for them what they needed to be able to survive. He's given them food. But now they're in the land, they don't need that food anymore because they have the produce of the land. The thing is, it's still God who's providing with the food. He's not doing it in a supernatural way that he did with the manna. He doesn't need to. And the challenge for the people, after the the initial amazement, imagine how they would feel when they had all this new food or the the variety of food that they could suddenly gorge themselves on. The challenge was to continue to give thanks to God for his wonderful provision. And they were warned about that back in Deuteronomy. God said to them this. He said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide. Wells you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I wonder how often we forget God's faithful provision for our needs because maybe we separate that sort of natural provision through natural means and the supernatural take food because of sophisticated farming techniques we have these days we have refrigeration we have quicker means of transportation we assume there will always be food available we just need to nip down to waitrose and buy some maybe we find it hard to give thanks to god before we eat our food To say grace, because we've never known a time when there hasn't been any food on the table. Same with our health. How often do we thank God for our good health? Is it only when we become ill that we we turn to God in prayer? And do we think that he only acts when he heals us supernaturally, rather than through medication or at the hands of a surgeon? Or our safety? When someone escapes death in a car crash, we we praise God for saving their life. But God is watching over us every time we get in the car. How often do we thank him for keeping us safe? Or do we just take take it for granted? We rededicate ourselves to God through celebrating God's faithfulness and thanking him for his provision. And finally, we we rededicate ourselves to God through living lives of reverent fear. Have a look at verse 13 in chapter 5. It says, Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord... I have now come. If you know the story in 1 Chronicles 21, it may remind you of that time when David sinned against the Lord by taking a census of the number of military men he had under his command. The sin being he was relying more on his human resources than on God. As a result, God sent an angel with a drawn sword to punish Israel. I wonder what's going on in this situation when Joshua asks the men, are you for us or for our enemies? And he replies, neither. But as command of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Is he, I wonder, waiting to see how Joshua will respond? Will he trust in his own strength and the strength of his armies? Or will he trust in the Lord fighting for them? Because if the Lord is on his side, then the number of fighting men doesn't matter because the Lord can defeat them with one angel. Well, fortunately, Joshua does the right thing, we're told. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? To fall face down in reverence is to submit to God and to say, you are the almighty God, the holy God, I am am your servant. I can do nothing without you. I submit to you. Tell me what you want me to do. And the rather strange reply comes back. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, those words may be familiar to some of you. They were the same words that God said to Moses, when he appeared to him from a burning bush. But what relevance does this incident have to us today? Well, quite often we ask God the same question, don't we? What message does my Lord have for his servant? God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? How, as a church, do you want us to serve you? How should I use my time, my my talents... My treasures. Often when we pray to God, we're looking for very specific guidance. We just want to be told what to do, and then we can get on and do it. We don't have to spend ages worrying about it. The trouble is, that's often not how God works. What he wants most from us is to live holy lives. A verse for the year, a couple of years ago, you may remember, was one from 1 Peter 1, 15, which says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. He's less interested in what we do than how we do it. He wants us to live lives that conform to our new status as his holy people, that conform to our identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Peter says to them, he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We are foreigners if we are Christians here because we no longer belong to the world. We belong to Jesus Christ. As Christians, we worship the same holy God today as Joshua did then. The difference is that God has now made it possible for us to draw near to him. Under the old covenant, there's always a distance between the people and our holy God. And that was seen in the the construction of the tabernacle. And the temple, which had a place, the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could enter. And only once a year. When Jesus came and dealt with our sin on the cross, that curtain in the temple was torn in two. Representing the access we now have to God through him. And as a result, Jesus has made us a, a holy people. He's called us to live holy lives. As Peter says... But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. If we are Christians, it is because God in his mercy has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We now have a new identity in Christ. We have a new Lord of our lives. And therefore, we can't live our lives the way we used to live them. We now belong to Christ. We worship a holy God. And so Peter goes on to say, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We come together together as god's holy people on a sunday to meet with our holy god to be built up by him to be equipped to go out into the world to live as foreigners in reverent fear so what would that look like for you this week what are the the sinful desires that are waging war against your soul What are the good deeds that God is preparing for you to do in order to glorify him?